Oh, welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co, iTunes, podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And we're back live, and we've got Elaine Del Valle from Political Cortadito with us on the phone. Elaine, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Grant, for inviting me. Always a pleasure. So why don't we start with what I was just talking about, this newest MLS stadium deal. What's the dirt? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I have to agree with you on the fact that I think that this, of all the locations so far, has been the most uh, appealing as far as economic development is concerned, as far as um, using you know a combination of public and privately owned land paid uh, for at market value. Uh, taxable uh, land uh, for the development. It's going to, you know, breathe life into an area that needs it. Um, and, you know, I'm, I am concerned about the parking. I know that you think it's easy to get to and that there's a lot of, uh, you know, avenues to get to it. I think there is some transit, mass transit nearby. Um, but, you know, you we live in a world that is very uh, car-centric. Uh, we don't want to get out of our cars, and I just feel that it will not be successful if there's not a major parking component, which I think can be can be done, uh, probably. Um, they might have to expand from the footprint of those two blocks and go over across, you know, either east or something um, to maybe do a parking garage. I, I do think that, you know, this kind of thing, as you, as you may have said or hinted towards, you know, this type of development will, you know, spawn other developments across the street and in neighboring blocks. So that's, that's a good thing. Right. Um, I, I'm hoping I that this is, this bucks insider, the trend. The insider connection though. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know how, and I know that the people who are close to the mayor, including the father of his fundraiser, um, own the six, all six parcels of private land. It's not like the little Havana, you know, situation where you had individual property owners. You know, we have, you know, they're dealing with one property owner um, that owns the other properties on the same block as the Miami-Dade property. Um, that property owner is a company that is owned by Chris Korge and Barry Goldmeyer, the father of Brian Goldmeyer. Um, and, you know, they, they did buy it in 2006. So I'm not saying that there's anything, you know, it's not like they, they bought the line because they knew that it was coming, you know, but I'm just wondering how many other locations in Overtown were giving any kind of serious consideration of this location was thought, you know, specifically because of who owns the land. You know, it, it, well, the, the Miami there's... Day, I've asked if the Miami-Dade building that's going to be sold is on the surplus list. Um, they have still not answered me, but it'd be interesting to find out if it suddenly appears on the surplus list. Right. Well, that's the thing. The The main attraction there is the larger parcel, the four-and-a-half-acre parcel, I suppose, that uh, it's held by Windsor Capital. And that was actually like a large warehouse complex. Ironically, uh, that one of my clients uh, was looking at buying uh, back in 2005 and six as well. She thought it would be a great location for some sort of health club. Um, so I'm very familiar with this location. And, yeah, you know, somebody's always going to own property in Let's face it, um, a lot of property owners do know politicians and they're fairly connected too. So this would probably, you know, something like this could happen anywhere. But as we saw next to the Marlins Park, um, not having any connection to the property owners kind of sunk the deal. Right? right, right. But I mean, we still don't know, you know, what these, you know, what the team is willing to pay for this property, um, which, you know, some might say, you know, what the value, you know, some might say might compare in value or might be even less valuable than the daycare property, for example, 
in, in Little Havana. Um, you know, so, so we still yet have to see how this all pans out, what the price is. I agree that, you know, the main property or the address of the property is the property that you mentioned, which I think the Windstorm Investments Group owns now. And at one point, it was going to be, you know, some kind of residential um, unit or complex. But, you know, it, it won't happen without the other block. You know, the, right. the, the, the MLS Miami or Beckham United has said that they want, you know, the whole nine acre, it's the, it's the two block radius. It won't happen without the other block, which is where the Miami Dade building is. Um, and the other private companies that are are, are owned by the, the political connections to the mayor. Now, well, I haven't searched yet, but I will. Okay. Who owns the properties <laughs> across the streets? Uh, you know, around the stadium as well. Well, I'll um, tell and, you and, this. You know, and, and, and I'll I'm tell not you this. This is not a good deal. It may be a good deal. I just want to know the specifics of who knew what when, and you know, make sure that people are getting you know equitable amounts and not you know bloated or inflated. Uh, market values. Well, uh, I'll tell you this much. One thing in particular that I noticed is that they kept talking about having uh, nine acres of land, and that's the minimum amount of land in the city of Miami for what they call a special area plan. So I think that tells us what kind of zoning they're looking to do. They're looking to, you know, accumulate nine acres and create their own special stadium zone on those nine acres. Ah, see, I didn't know that. That's very interesting. So that's why the nine acres is that magic number. That's the that magic number. I've been told number. by my sources that they they will absolutely not back off of, and that's probably the reason. So that oh, makes yes. a lot of sense. I would say I'm more familiar with special districts than anybody in this town anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, let's talk about the the politicians who've been seated, the new uh, elect, the newly elected officials, and uh, and let's get Lajo's grades thus far. Um, Ken Russell was seated uh, the day before Thanksgiving. Has he had anything to be graded on yet? I don't think so. I don't think either one of them have had a meeting yet. I think their first meetings are this week. Um, I believe uh, Ken Russell's first meeting is Thursday, if, if I'm not mistaken, the 10th. Okay. Um, and I think that uh, Kristen Rosen Gonzalez's first meeting is on Wednesday of this week. So we'll get to see, you know, how they uh, how how they are this week. Now, I will say that I have seen. The agenda package that the commissioners got for uh, in Miami Beach, and it is huge. It's enormous. And so she's got a lot of reading uh, to do in the next couple of days before uh, the meeting. And I believe that there are some very important, um, you know, issues on there, including uh, something about you know, per, you know giving some type of uh, lease to a uh, oceanside or beachside park that a lot of residents are up in arms about um, because uh, Sabrina Cohen wants to build a wellness uh, center uh, for disabled people who don't have access to the beach or don't have a lot of access to the beach. Um, and, you know, she's working out some kind of deal with the city to give her this this, uh, this lease. And there are a lot of residents who are against it because they just think that the plan is, is too much. So that's going to be an interesting Wednesday to see, you know, how she turns out. Um, I, I don't know what's on the agenda for Thursday's Miami meeting, but I think, you know, definitely the, the first meeting sets is the opportunity to set the tone and let people know what kind of commissioner they're going to be. Absolutely. We will find out a lot of things in this first meeting for these new commissioners. Um, but what are we finding out about the Miami-Dade mayor's race? Because it's starting to take shape, isn't it? Well, I don't think it's starting to take shape or if it's just, you know, I mean, I guess it is in the sense that, uh, Raquel Regalado, who's the only declared challenger so far, um, is dropping her first mailer this week. 
Um, but, I mean, I think that, you know, the, the, the mayor, the incumbent, has had uh, radio commercials in Spanish uh, paid for by a nonprofit that you can't trace the money from and also, you know, had walkers, I think, a few months ago leave door hangers in Little Havana, of all places. Um, so, you know, it, it's kind of getting sort of a little slow. Um, it, it looks like there was a lot of activity a few months ago right after um, the school board member, Ricardo, announced. Um, you know, she was, uh, you know, suing the, the county. There was a lot of back and forth. She was debating his spokesman on TV. And I think that in the last couple of months, a lot of that has died down. But we're going to see it uh, come back up again, you know, early in the next year if the news cycles are not dominated by the legislature. So we'll see. We'll see how that goes. But I, I do expect the, the campaigning to start in earnest, uh, for real, um, early next year, certainly by February. Well, the big question that everybody is asking in the Miami-Dade County mayor's race is, will there be a second challenger? And we're, of course, talking about former city of Miami mayor Xavier Suarez. Have you heard any final indications? Because he, he kept saying, hey, I'm going to make a big announcement pretty soon. And uh, well, I don't think he, anybody he has knows yet. repeatedly said, I don't want to say promise, but, um, you know, certainly, you know, com- you know, made commitments to make the announcement of the decision um, by the end, you know, after the end of the year. So I think by the beginning of, of the year, we'll have a certain answer from him one way or another. Um, I don't think that he's going to jump in um, for a lot of reasons. I think that, you know, he's, uh, he, he, I think that he doesn't, I think he wants to concentrate on helping his son become the mayor of Miami uh, is one reason. Um, and I think that also he did not do as well on the fundraiser in October as I think he wanted to do um, and has not garnered the type of excitement or support for a possible campaign that he wanted. Um, so I'm not sure that he's going to jump in. Now, that's not to say that there's not another third candidate that might jump in. You know, I have heard... Um, you know, about a lot of, you know, a lot of people that, that, not a lot of people, a few other people who have, you know, threatened or, you know, considered jumping in, including Joe Martinez again, although I don't think that that's going to happen. Um, and including a couple of the other, you know, commissioners who, you know, we, we yet have to see if they jump in or if they're pushed in by somebody else. Okay. I, I hadn't heard any rumors that there were any commissioners besides uh, Mr. Suarez who were really considering it. Well, I think um, Commissioner Juan Zapata actually has said it a couple of months ago um, during the budget process, you know, kind of, you know, threatened. I don't know if that was an empty threat. Um, well, and I know that a lot of people have been encouraging um, Chairman Dean Monestine to, to, to run. I, I think that's maybe because there's always been a black candidate, you know, and the black community wants there to be a black candidate, as, as there probably should with the Miami or well, Miami-Dade election. Um, so I, I don't know if he's the only one that's been approached, but I do know people who have approached him. Well, Mr. Zapata has made a lot of waves about the West End and about policing in the West End. Um, do you think he has a point there? I think he has a point there, and I think he has a point also with the budget. I think I think Zapata has been one of the more, you know, like Suarez, one of the more independent-minded commissioners, um, and he asks a lot of the really good questions. He's very frustrated with the budget process. Um, which, you know, it, it's just there's, there's just too many departments, too many categories. He wants to see it more streamlined. Um, he thinks there's a lot of double dipping going on. Um, he also, you know, was very concerned about the, the issue with the special taxing districts um, that was uncovered uh, earlier, you know, this year that, that I wrote about in Political Cortadito, where you had people, you know, 
uh, not paying for, you know, security and lighting that the, the county was providing. Um, oh. So they were either paying for it out of the general fund or they were paying for it out of other special taxing districts that were perhaps paying too much, well, which is what, you know, people, what they found at the end of the day was that some people were paying for other people's special taxing districts. Oh, man. Um, yeah, and that since has been supposedly fixed, although it's going to be revisited, and I think part of what the the, the county is looking at is allowing cities, you know, wh- where there are cities like, uh, you know, Coral Gables or uh, Miami Lakes. Yes, they proposed um, a charter which, you know, amendment. So have the cities, to, you know, right, have the cities right. manage the, the special taxing districts, which I think is a very good idea. Well, let's. Um, let, I'll tell you what, we're going to take a very short break and we're going to debate that idea. Okay. Um, because I have my own opinion about it, and, and we're going to talk to the audience because this is an issue that you're going to have to vote on, I think, in November of next year, everybody in Miami-Dade County. And, uh, after is, that the, a ba- is it a ballot issue? Is it something that goes to the ballot? Yes, it is a ballot issue. I've okay. actually got a copy of it. I'll have to send it over to you. Oh, cool. Or maybe it, it, tweet it. it comes from Bobo's office, right? Oh, yeah. So, okay. um, so let me do this. Before we go, I'm going to give out the call-in number one time, 305-541-2350. I've got two tickets for this Wednesday's Champion Mindset events. Uh, Les Brown, motivational speaker, will be there. It's an all-day event. I've got two tickets to give away. Call in 305-541-2350. That's 305-541-2350. The second call at the break wins the tickets and will be right back. This is the only in Miami show. You know that I'm determined and that I always win. I want treats, I want treats, I want lots and lots of treats. I want everything inside this room and more. What good luck just for me, my own private candy spree. I've been trying to find this place for many days. Part of getting what I want is finding what I want. Now I've found what I want, now I'll get what I want. Thanks. I want treats, I want treats, I want lots and lots of treats. I want treats. That's why I brought this, my gift to the baby. With no mice around, Uncle Drosselmeyer now is a clock maker and a toy maker. And you know it's quite easy to turn a toy into a mousetrap. I'm the king, I'm the king, I'm the brand new king. I know everything we're giving away two tickets that's right two tickets to this wednesday's champion mindset events special guest speaker les brown and 880 am's own pete delatory that's right 880 the business pete delatory will be speaking at the champion mindset events this wednesday all day december 9th call in we've got two free tickets 305-541-2350 that's 305-541-2350 Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show. And I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern. And everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co, iTunes, podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And you're listening to music from The Mouse King all night tonight. We're going to have one of the creators on the program later in the evening. And welcome back, Elaine. Thank you for joining us this evening. Thanks for having me. We're with Elaine Del Valle. She writes politicalcourt.ito.com. If you haven't read it yet, you just don't know what's going on. Right? 
So where were we? We were talking about the uh, special taxing districts. You're, yes. That, that's something that's near and dear to your heart. Huh? Oh, you yeah. So so Miami-Dade, okay, so the state of Florida created these special taxing districts. And uh, for many of you, you don't have one. You live in what's called an HOA, a homeowners association. You have a group of houses, and they all pitch in to pay for the common maintenance of the property that you live in, like the, you know, everything besides your little home uh, inside the bigger complex. Well, special districts act like that, but they can tie together commercial property. They can tie together any sort of piece of property, and they're a semi-governmental organization. In fact, they're called a sub-governmental organization. And to make one, you have to have an act of the city that you're in and the county commission. So as you were saying, the county has proposed, and, and it's going to a charter amendment vote, that uh, the county will only regulate these special districts if they're all inside of county territory. Right. Otherwise, they'll be regulated primarily by the cities that the special districts are within. So why do you think that's a good idea, Elaine? Well, I think that the cities might be able to bring the costs of these uh, services down. They're they're already they're already providing services. Um, you know, I, I think that an additional layer of service is going to be better provided at the local level. I do have the fear that you know, in these smaller cities, depending on what you're talking about, you know, particularly when we're talking, when we're talking about places like Sweetwater or Hialeah, there's going to be another opportunity for graft and corruption. Yeah, I mean, that's that was kind of my big beef with it. It's like, oh, let's just take uh, Virginia Gardens and whatever special district they have, we'll let Virginia Gardens deal with it. Well, it's like a tiny city of like 2,000 people, right? Right. I mean, how many people live in Virginia Gardens? I mean, Sweetwater is, you know. Right, and, and I understand Sweetwater. where you're coming from, where you know, because it does provide, you know, those council members in those small cities where, you know, there's not that much – uh, scrutiny, an opportunity to, you know, commit some type of, you know, malfeasance. However, that said, um, you know, it, it can also be done right. And, you know, if people have to be watchful of their own government. You know, they have to watch this. This is an opportunity to, to bring that down and to allow other neighborhoods, you know, now other neighborhoods in, in a town like Miami Lakes or in a town like, you know, Pinecrest or Coral Gables, can go to the city and say, okay, now we want a, a special technician that's going to be through the city, and we know that the services are going to be there, and we know that it's going to be done right. But those districts take money out of local coffers when they own property that's not taxed. So, you know... Huh? A, like, for example, Midtown has a special district. It's called the Midtown Community Development District. Right, but these are not, but these are special taxing districts are not like CRAs or community development districts in the sense that they still pay the regular tax that they have to pay to the city and the school board and the county. They are taxed additionally $7, $9, $15, $20, whatever it is, for their guard gate or their street lights or their lake maintenance. You know, it, it's an additional tax that's like, you know, that's like levied on top. It's not taking taxes that they already pay on their property and earmarking them for other services. It's well, levying new taxes on the, them. If the special district is founded by the, the state legislature's Chapter 190, that means actually any property it owns doesn't pay property taxes because it is itself subgovernmental. Yeah. Like in Midtown, the Parking garages in Midtown are owned by one of these community development districts, a special taxing district, 
They don't. They're exempt from taxes. I don't think that that's the same thing with the, you know, with like the Lakes of the Meadows special taxing district for their lighting. I don't think that those homes don't have to pay county taxes. Oh no, 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 the homes don't. Fifteen dollar lighting, but that's what I'm talking right, about. Right, but there's there's so many districts. But there's so many flavors of, the of these. Are, are residential. Right, there's so many flavors of them though. There's all these different varieties, and my big concern isn't so much with the smaller ones where it's like, oh, you know, you're paying fifteen dollars a a month for lighting, but rather the ones like Midtown where. Uh, as, you know, as a government, we've borrowed a hundred million dollars, or or two hundred million dollars to create a subdivision, and now we have bonds and we're paying those back. You know, so there's there's so many different flavors. I, I feel like what they're going to do is one size fits all, which may not be appropriate for local government in this town. Well, I, I may go the opposite with you on that one because I mean, if, if you're telling me that commercial properties or larger properties get a break off their tax while, you know, smaller properties and, and don't, I, I don't, I don't agree that that's the right way to go. I mean, you know, it, it, it should be, you know, the same, the same thing should apply to anybody who's in a special taxing district, you know, and I, and I don't think that they should get tax abatement from their other obligations, you know, to the school board and the county and whatever municipality that they're in, you know, the, any, any special taxing district money, uh, as far as I understood, I'm going to have to go back and look at this, is on top of that. Um, well, anyway, the, the that, money is on up, top. I think at the very, I, I, is that coming up on the 15th or in January? Mm, I'm it not might, sure. It might come up on the 15th. It might come up on the 15th, but as I understand it, it will be a county charter issue, and it's going to be on the ballot next year. If they if it comes up, it's just to approve it to go on to next year. Well, no, no, the commissioners ballot. have to put it on the, on the ballot, I think. Right, right. Right, right, right. That's, what, that's why it's coming up. But that, that will be definitely interesting, you know. I'll take a look at the legislation once again because I didn't, you know, I certainly did not expect that, you know, the taxes for the county would be, uh, you know, would be, would disappear because they're in a special taxing district. That would not. Well, not. let's do this. I'm going to bring in Carlos Miller. He's live in studio with us. Carlos? Okay. Hey, Elaine. How you doing? Good. How are you? Good, good. So for those in our audience, Carlos is the founder and publisher of PhotographyIsNotACrime.com, a local news website that is national and covers police matters, civil rights. And I wanted to bring in Carlos specifically uh, with you, Ladra, to talk about the many, many instances of police brutality and abuse that we have seen in South Florida just in the last week. Um, there's There's been so many of them. Um, I mean, I want to start with the one that, that hit closest to home for me until all of this weekend's craziness, which was uh, an officer at Publix on Biscayne Boulevard and 17th Street. Um, a city of Miami officer was not disciplined by uh, the internal affairs at the city of Miami Police Department, uh, but the citizen in, in investigative panel uh, found him guilty of misconduct. Um, have you heard anything further about this officer's employment status with the city of Miami? Because as I've heard, Publix uh, relieved him of his duties at their uh, supermarket. Did you see about this one? This was in the. Are, New you, are Times. you talking to Elaine or myself? Yeah, I, 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 I'm asking you, Carlos, but I'm also asking Elaine yeah. if she's heard anything yeah, I, I, about honestly, this. Honestly, and... I have not been following the details on that. I know the story. I'm following a lot more closely the Miami Beach story. Which is the one that we've all been following. Is the whole world is watching that one? And you know, I'm just reading a story now about Jim DeFeedy from CBS, and he's basically writing that the cop who shot and killed this guy violated departmental policy, because 
And and not only that, the cop who tased the man also did because he's supposed to yell tase, tase, tase before he shoots his taser to let the other cops know what's happening, you know. So in this case, he did not. The other cop with the assault rifle heard the tase and shot his gun. And as Jim DeFitti writes here, six-tenths of a second after the taser's crack can be heard, the officer with the assault rifle pulled the trigger and fired the first shot into Winesett who was already falling backward from the taser. And another seven-tenths of a second, as wine sets hit the gr- hits the ground, the officer fired a second round from the assault rifle, killing wine set. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... Um, and they know. call this sympathetic gunfire. That's in quotations. Sympathetic gunfire means when, when in this case, you know, the cop, he hears the, the crack of the taser, Right. He thinks he needs to pull the trigger to keep his his um, co-worker, you know, fellow officer safe. So, so it's sympathetic gunfire. We don't know what we're shooting. We don't care. But, hey, we're keeping our guys safe. Oh, man. <laughs> well, I mean, Elaine, you've seen the, the last administration of Miami Beach leave and the new people arrive, including Chief Oates. Are we seeing any difference in behavior on the streets from their officers? No, no, you know, we're not. I mean, this is the same department that, you know, just a couple of years ago with a taser, you know, killed a young man because he was graffitiing a building. Um, Israel Hernandez, yes. Yeah, Israel Hernandez. He posed, I think, even less of a threat, you know, obviously than this man. You know, this man did have like a razor, a straight razor knife. You know, but but certainly, you know, even if you don't taser him, I mean, you're going to tell me that two or three police officers that were there on the scene could not have, you know, gotten a hold of that that man without how, how having many, to use, you know, deadly force. Of course, they could have. How many officers you know, were there, Carlos? There's at least four or five. Yeah, right? there and they kept growing. You know, I mean, they kept coming and coming. And there's no way they tell yeah. me why they couldn't tackle him. Like, good old fashioned tackling. They, I mean, they were talking. Well, they were talking to, to him. You know, why, they were talking why are to him. Police officers so loath to. Do? We you know we see it all the time on TV. They they chase the perps down. And they tackle them. Why, why don't we see that? Why is it, you know, now in real life, they don't chase anybody down. They just stand where they are, aim and shoot. Well, I and think it's not right. It's know? also striking that, you know, in Colorado, police could, you know, apprehend alive a suspect who was armed with a firearm, not with some rinky dank barber's razor, um, but armed with a real firearm that he had just killed an officer, wounded four others, killed two more, including a veteran. And wounded 11 people total, yet they, they, the Colorado police, the Colorado Springs police, could apprehend him alive. And Chief Oates, who came here from Aurora, doesn't have, after a whole year in office, a little more than that, hasn't been able to convince Miami Beach police to do the same with suspects here. You know, another thing here is, even though we already know he violated policy, they haven't released his name. They haven't released anybody's name. So it's the same old, same old, you know. It's like we have a new chief. I'm going to clean everything up. But you know what? We're circling the wagons right now. We're not going to release the names. Wow. Yeah. I mean, here we are three days later, and they still haven't released his name. Yeah. That's, you know, that's a problem. And, I, and you know, and I, I don't know that police cameras, the, the, the on-best cameras are going to make things any better, particularly if, if they're going to give us a hard time when we go to ask for them as public records, um, which they're trying to do, you know, by shielding them from public records laws. Um, but, you know, uh, one of the best things that's happening in, in the, in, you know, with these police shootings is that people 
you know, who's, who are there have, now we have so many cell phone cameras that we are catching. I mean, I, I think I've seen the Miami Beach shooting from like three different angles. Right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Actually, on photography is not a crime uh, dot com. I think it's we, we've got three different angles, and one of those okay. videos has uh, well over four hundred thousand views by now. And then, yeah, no. and I mean, even it's, it's, when, it's, and it's pretty shocking. And even know? if they don't release the footage, like we see in Chicago PD, had they've done, they released it more than a year later after lawsuits and everything. Right. It does get released. You know, you have to fight it. You have to push. You have to educate these people. You have to sue them. You have to do that, and we, that's why we do that. We have to keep fighting because this is our rights, and you know we want to keep the government transparent. Right, but we're lucky that we know to ask for this tape. You know, how many times do we not know to ask for tape? You know, it's just you know I I, I think that there needs to be much more done as far as training, as far as you know standard operating procedures need to be changed. Um, you know, I, I, I'd like to see a little bit more, you know, a little bit less uh, use of you know deadly force you know, and more use of, of their minds, you know, thinking. I mean, it's just, you know, like, like you said, you know, why is it possible to take down armed, you know, suspects elsewhere? And, you know, here, you know, we, we, we shoot. And, you, you know, you know, it's I mean, great. It makes no sense. Well, well, you know, what I found great, I found it very, you know, I was proud because my mom is Colombian. So I came across this video over the, the weekend where a group of police officers from Colombia were surrounding a man with a gun. The man was suicidal, same kind of deal. And they managed out with the guy where they're just, they talked to him, you know, they had, they didn't even have their guns drawn. And then another cop walks from behind him, gets a nightstick and nails the, the knife out of his hand, just walks out of his hand. Like other cops just go up there and they, they just handcuff him, you know, they pounce on him, but they don't punch him, they don't kick him. And it was just very calm. It was very, they, they used their mind, you can see. And that's, we don't see that here in this country. Well, what's upsetting is, is hearing from police in this country how pretty much everything is justified, including uh, the actions that I think anybody who saw them just inherently, like everybody who saw that video just inherently said, something is wrong here. You know, it didn't look like those officers were all afraid for their lives. They were, I mean, they were probably legitimately concerned that something may happen, but, um, you know, the guy that did the firing was the furthest away from the original video. But see, what happened is they were talking to him for two minutes. The guy was talking to with his arms. He lifted up his arms at one point. That's when he got tased. That's when he got shot, right, you know, less than a second later. And they're going to say, well, he raised his arm. We were in, in fear for our lives. Even though you can see the video, he was just talking. You know, there was no threat behind his right. arm but then, pointing. Right, but then again, and, and here's where, you know, I know that I disagree with you guys, you know, on, on this part. Because while I do think that this is lamentable, while I do think that there are, you know, far too many police-involved shootings on a national level, and, and we've seen them. They're in the news all the time. You know, I also think that it's very difficult to, you know, or it's very easy for us to, you know, sit here in, in our homes and in the radio you know, studio and make judgments on, you know, what's happening when the adrenaline is shooting through your body and, you know, you don't know if he's cut anybody up in the bank and you don't know what other, you know, weapons he may be holding and you don't know what else is going on. And so I think that the knee-jerk reaction to protect or to stand behind their fellow officer, you know, in, in a way is commendable because, you know, they still don't really know everything that was going through his head, you know, as he stood just, you know, 10 feet away. It looked, looked like a lot of space for us. Well, but well, well, there, it's, still, it's still no I'm excuse. Sure it it's still like no excuse. Wait, let me just finish saying this because the thing is, 
you know, it, it's like everything else. It's like in politics. It, it's like in the medical industry. It, it's like in Hollywood. It's like in the banking industry. You know, you're always going to have your 5 to 10% who's bad, you know. But the far majority of police officers, I think, you know, are, are good and want to do a good job. And when this kind of thing happens, they start becoming automatically defensive because they never see anybody else defending them. You know, when a police officer is shot, whether it be by a white, a black, a Latino, it doesn't matter. You you don't see anybody, you know, doing police lives matter. I mean, I actually oh, they get huge support. Actually, <laughs> they get huge actually, support. I, oh I my beg, god! You know look, I, mean? I, I, I we're they, gonna they can raise they can raise thousands of dollars within hours. Listen, I, I beg to differ because I actually had Javier Ortiz live on this radio program uh, when he was marching for Blue Lives Matter in front of the American Airlines Arena. Nary one year ago, practically on this show. But you know what? We're going to take a really short break. Elaine, you want to stick around for the last segment of the I, hour? I will stick around because the only people who were marching were the police. And that's that's my point is that, you know, they don't have a lot of support. And I think that, you know, they need to have more support. Maybe they'll be, you know, more easy to, you know, maybe they'll criticize each other more if they get more support from the community. Well, I'll tell you that's what, what we're going to we're going to pick this one back up after the break. We'll be right back. This is the only in no, Miami no, show. No. Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show. And I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co, iTunes, podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And we are back with Carlos Miller, photographyisnotacrime.com, live in studio, and Elaine Del Valle, Ladra from Political Cortadito on the phone. Ladra, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. And I'm sorry to. You know, I'm, I'm glad it's getting good, actually. Oh, it's getting good. It's getting good. So why do you think we need to – how can we support police more than we already do? Because believe me, we do support police quite a bit. They were actually probably in the studio earlier. I saw the guys from the PBA here. Uh, they're, they're very vocal. They're out there in the community. Why is it that police are so – I, I guess we have to forgive them for killing. They and then don't feel supported. They feel like every time that this happens, you know, people are very quick – you know, to judge them. And I think that that's probably why well, look, they look, reserve Elaine, judgment on themselves. Look, Elaine, I'm know? sorry. These cops have to get over it, you know. I mean, they don't want to be criticized, and they got to be better people to the public, better officers to the public. You know, they can't just be killing just because they can. 
We know it can happen. We know they can detain people right, without killing people. You're painting them all with, a, with the one brush. It's like, you know, no, I, I am, I am painting, I am painting, do, I am painting the institution of policing. Yeah, it doesn't know? matter. It doesn't matter because they're all part of the institution. Well, let me it, say this. Well, what you, you know, mentioned, what yes you mentioned no. about I mean, you Jim DeFeed. You, you can't generalize about any one population. Now, ho- you can't generalize well, about this hold population. Hold on a second. talking about I'll tell you. I tell you. a lot of police officers and first responders, you know, and paramedics and firefighters. Me too, me too. That's great. But police officers... You know, have a very difficult job, and right. they're very underappreciated. Some of them do have a very difficult and, job, and, and but... they can destroy your lives, and they do, and they get away with it, and they do yeah. it all the time. And so the doctors, and so the lawyers, and so no, the well, lawyers and doctors don't but, kill three you know, people but, a day. But the difference is, is that that doctors but, take an uh, oath to first know? do no harm. Police no, I mean, do not. When lawyers kill three people a day, then people are going to be pissed off at lawyers more than they are. I, well, I don't think that you know. Uh, <laughs> I, I I understand that you. You know where you're coming from. I just think that we are often too quick to paint them on. My my own daughter, my own 15 year old daughter, because she sees all the news. She says, "Oh, I hate cops." You know, you you know, you cannot paint all police with the same brush. Sure, there are people who abuse their power, and even that guy. You know, I don't know if he did it because he's a you know a racist, a nasty guy. He hated that guy, or or he was just scared for his life. We still no. Don't usually, have all yeah, the see, he was scared for his life. Well, officers, and we hold them to a higher standard. Let me hold on, and, and let me put, but but let me point this out. You see, we hold them to a higher standard in the court of public opinion, but in the court of actual courts, they're held to a lower standard because ever since the William Lozano trial over 25 years ago, which was overturned on appeal. We here. cannot use the department's own policies to grade police in a criminal trial. So we actually hold them to a lower standard, a much lower standard than a citizen would for the same offense, because we do not factor in their training, which they are supposed to know and follow, if they are charged criminally. Right, That's but we a big also deal. don't factor in the fact that, you know, what their job is now we do maybe i don't elaine i don't but plenty of people do and to deal with crime there's so many there's so many cop lovers out there you know you act like it's like the world's overrun with cop haters no it's just like we're we're just angry and we see what's happening people like you who only judge and criticize meet people like me who are a little bit more open-minded i do judge and criticize i think what we saw in miami beach is ridiculous, and that, that officer should not be an officer, regardless of well, whether or not he did it because he was scared or for you know nefarious reasons. Okay, it, 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 it was an isolated incident. Nefarious then. reasons. I think that, that he could have legitimately been. He was just, one of the, he was just a bad apple. Yeah, he was just a, you know, you know a bad apple and and, and isolated experience. Not all bad apples. He wanted to they're go home not. to his family. He wanted to play with his big old toy gun, or you know, he acted like it was a toy, but it's a real gun, and that's what happened. You know, he couldn't okay, wait so to shoot the gun. Your extremism. No, is, well, yeah, because I want to know his name. I, I want them to admit that they screwed up, but no, they're not going to. And you know why? Because they've done it before. They've gone away with it before, and they're going well, to get away with that, it okay, look, this time. Well, you see, there is a valid point, which is that the more public officials withhold what we all know those public officials have done when they withhold the information, because the whole world knows, okay? I mean, the entire world knows that guy did it, but they still won't release pertinent details I mean, it's not like there's going to be a riot on Miami Beach if they release this gentleman's name, but there's no transparency. I mean, how can you hold anybody accountable if our government officials can just say, we have put in the interdict, this person is a secret policeman now? Well, they're, they're, they're learning from Chicago. You know, they can get away with it in Chicago. They figure they can do it in Miami Beach. 
What do you think about Chicago, Elaine? You saw those videos. I, I you know, I'm, you know, I, I'm not an expert. You guys are the experts on this. Uh, all I'm saying is that it's difficult for me to paint the entire industry, let's call it, with one brush. When I, you know, I know a lot of officers, and they're good guys who will you know, disown this type of behavior and who, you but know, we want, who, we want them to. No, no, a lot of them do. But Elaine, hey, you want to hear a story, Elaine? You probably don't know this because you think we're all anti-mean cop haters, right? But yeah, we wrote a story about a Missouri cop who blew the whistle and they retaliated against him and he had to raise thousands of dollars just because he had to get legal support. And they had raised... Well, they filed criminal charges against that officer. Right. Well, they had raised... Oh. On on kick go whatever GoFundMe GoFundMe yeah less than three thousand dollars in five months yeah and then meanwhile the cop who shot the the Chicago guy Jason Van Dyke he raised more than ten thousand dollars in less than twenty four hours yeah yeah so yeah there's a lot of support for cops out there for bad cops you know but when the good cops are out there who's supporting them we put it out there and guess what they got they more than tripled their you know what they had. Well, that's the thing. There's not a lot of support for cops to blow the whistle. There just right, isn't. Right, but that's what I'm saying is that we need to we need to create a climate, I think, in which they feel comfortable to do that. Well, I, I asked Chief Oates in Miami Beach personally um, a, a while back if there was anything he was doing in the department, and he just temporized. Like, I asked him specifically, is there anything you're doing in Miami Beach to accommodate whistleblowers to help them you know, change the culture in the department. And I didn't hear anything other than the standard, um, you know, there's distaste for whistleblowers in the police culture. Of course, it's the blue mafia. Right. I mean, uh, am I wrong right. there? But I think, I think that, I think that that can be changed, you know, with the right mindset. I mean, you know, they're, you know, part of their job is to protect and serve and, you know, their, well, their, they, their own jobs. Know, by, by reporting bad behavior, they are protecting and serving. You know, they, it just has to become part of their. It has to become part of their badge of honor. Yeah, but but protect and serve is actually not what police do. In fact, the Supreme Court ruled in 2006 that police have no duty to protect any specific individual. It's true. It, it really is great public relations, though. I mean, it's right there on the side of the car, but it just it doesn't it lost meaning. And it's sad that it lost meaning. That used to have a very important meaning. Today's meaning is comply or die. Well, well you know, again, you know, I think that that's an extreme uh, worldview of it. I still feel protected. I still feel better. You know, if I'm in a, you know, if, my, if I'm dropping off my teenage daughter at a party and there's a police officer outside, I feel better about it. Even though I know he's off duty and probably getting paid to do the party. I feel better about it. So I do still feel that even though they're not maybe obligated by the Supreme Court to protect, that they do serve that function in our society to some extent. I, I can see that you guys don't think that they serve that function at all, but I think that that's an, a ridiculous extreme position. No, we no, see, we see no, through the no, PR, no. though. <laughs> they, we see they through do the PR. Some things. You, like, you know, and you buy into the PR very well, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. I there's don't buy people into do. the PR, but well, I do believe that. Some of it is true. I don't believe, I, you know, what, what I'm not going to do is go like the, that. Oh, it's all comply or die, which is what you said. Well, I it don't is. believe that that's the overwhelming. Uh, well, it comes down to it. Or environment in the police, you know, industry or in the police society today. I do believe that the overwhelming rule of order is protect and serve. That's what, what that's what drives them. I don't think that comply or die is what drives. 
the majority of police officers today. I'm sorry if you think that that means I'm buying into their PR. Okay, so yeah. so let me ask a question to both of you guys, and and I'm gonna let uh, Eeny, Meeny, Miny, Mo, Elaine, you go first. <laughs> we have five minutes left. So my question is, what could we do to change the way that police unions work so that they are not so involved? in the public relations of what happens after an officer is involved in a shooting like what happens on Miami Beach, because they were very much behind uh, or in front of the camera, excuse me, in Chicago after Laquan McDonald was shot, spreading hearsay. They called it themselves hearsay. How can we make it so unions are still there to represent officers, which they want and need, but not right. as a bad a, a, an actor at times. You know, I, I, I agree that they should not be spin doctors. Um, and they before we know anything, they certainly shouldn't be saying anything either. Um, you know, they shouldn't be claiming innocence or that. You know, they, they need to take a more tempered and wait and see approach as well and say, you know, we will deal with this if it is. But, you know, but there is a process. The problem is because you have a union, and this I think is true of any labor organization, you know, they're there to represent their members and their members' best interests. It's like having an attorney. Your attorney right. is never going to be the one who says, like, well, she might be guilty. Let's just reserve that for later. Um, so they, they, you know, that that's the role that they serve. Perhaps what we need to have is an organization that's not police, not, neither police nor government, or, and I don't know how to do that. Maybe it's a, a you know, a, a, a civic organization, a community organization that is the one that, you know, makes those statements and that reacts on behalf of police as well as on behalf of the victims. You know, somebody who can be, you know, a midway person. I don't know if that can exist, but I think that might be one way of doing it. Carlos, what do you think we can do to reform police unions? Because they're the most active group in this whole uh, affair. They're, they're interfacing between the yeah, yeah. Well, well, well we, the... you know, what we ha we can't expect police unions to change themselves. You can't expect cops to change themselves. And we're no, we're not in the time right now. We're not whether we're able to do that because they're very strong and people are still disconnected or people are divided over the race issue. And what we need to do now is basically just continue exposing the bad cops without worrying about offending the good cops. Because yes, we know the good cops are out there, but you know they're not bad cops. They have nothing to worry about. It's not them. We're we're worrying about the bad cops. We help the good cops. We've proven that. But we got to continue exposing the bad cops to let people know that, yeah, these unions are evil, that these cops don't really care. And, yes, it's comply or die because, you know, maybe you always comply so you don't have to worry about dying. But one day if you decide not to comply because it's an unlawful order, then you may die. Well, it's been a great discussion. It's been great having both of you on the program. Carlos, thank you so much for coming into the show tonight. Thanks for having me on. And, and, th and thanks, Elaine. Good talking to you. Yes. And uh, if you guys want to find out more about Carlos Miller and what he's doing, check out photographyisnotacrime.com, or you can hit him up on Twitter at Carlos Miller. And Elaine, thank you very much for calling into the program tonight. It's my pleasure to have you on. It was fun, please. I'd love to come back. Absolutely. The door is open at the Only in Miami show. And if you want to find out more about what Elaine is writing about, go to politicalcourt.itho.com. Or on Twitter, check her out at News Chica. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show.